You are listening to Dermcast.tv, the official online media resource for the Society of Dermatology PAs. Thanks again for being here and having me. This is uh, going to feel a little bit like drinking from a fire hose. If you thought evidence-based medicine was fun, uh, the great cases that I have chosen today in my inpatient and outpatient world are really just to give you a flooding of why dermatology is actually really that cool. So I don't care whether you're a year into practice or 10 years into practice or 20 years into practice, anything we do that we do routinely can become mundane, can become a little boring or gosh, you know, at the end of a day, I'm not really sure what I did that was different than what I could have done the day before or the day before or the day before. And I will remind you that with dermatology, very specifically, we have an incredible opportunity every day, each and every day, to make a very meaningful, meaningful impact on the quality of someone's life, perhaps even the trajectory of someone's life, by virtue of just being there. So as one of my favorite mentors once said, it's not always what you have to do, but it's being there and being prepared and being able to do what you might need to do that creates your value. So I'm hoping to increase your interest and value in dermatology um, by sharing some of, this is, these are all personal cases of mine, cases of, uh, these are all images of my patients, um, CT imaging of my patients, histology of my patients, etc. Great cases and inpatient and outpatient. <clears throat> and we're gonna start uh, the very top and work our way down. There are 12 specific case encounters here. I will warn you, there are 123 slides in this hour-long presentation, so I'll be zipping through various slides much more quickly than others. We'll start out with skin hemorrhage. So this is a case of a 47-year-old female who had a history of bipolar disorder and crack cocaine use, an unconfirmed history of a PE about a year ago presenting to the hospital with new onset progressive skin lesions that were associated with both pain and pruritus. And she was saying it was because her pants were fitting too tightly. I said, man, those are some hefty, tight pants. Her review of systems was really not notable for much other than her cutaneous symptoms and a sore throat that had preceded her symptom onset by about two weeks. She had no personal history or family history of autoimmune diseases and her social history, as I mentioned, uh, history of drug use, but had said she had not used drugs um, in several years. She lived with a boyfriend, denied having any loss of consciousness with this presentation, and also denied having uh, exposure to excessive um, cold. And these are some images when I walked into the hospital bed and took up the sheets. So what I'm seeing here is retiform purpura. Retiform purpura is the arborization of our, there we go, of the branching of our blood supply into the cutaneous microvasculature. These are lesions that arose uh, later in the course, so these previously just hemorrhagic arborizing purpura plaques or patches became indurated plaques that sort of coalesced into larger areas with associating superficial necrosis, hence the blistering. And on her biopsy, you can see at both 10x and certainly at 40x, this clot, I can get the, there we go. Sorry, I'm not real um, familiar with the use of this mouse device here, but the intravascular coagulation process or a bland thrombosis, non-inflammatory. We don't see inflammatory cells around the blood vessel. And so we started our workup for a hypercoagulable state in the setting of arborizing non-inflammatory purpura and found that her protein C was low Protein S was normal, prothrombin normal, factor V Leiden was negative, and she was not positive for any cryoglobulin exposure. But her antistreptolysin was high. 
And I'll remind you that the reason I ordered this was that in particular scenarios, you can actually get an acquired protein C deficiency post-infection. She'd been complaining of a sore throat, thought worthwhile, let's just get a streptolysin test. We're probably not going to swab anything at this point because um, it was so delayed. But her streptolysin had remained high and her protein C was low. So she did, in fact, have definably an acquired protein C deficiency. But was that enough to give us this degree of very prominent arborizing purpura? Probably not. So we kept on. And her antiphospholipids were elevated. Her IgM specifically to cardiolipin was high. In, that's a very specific test. And in addition, she had a lupus anticoagulant profile, which was high across the board. So this is a classic presentation of a woman with a distant history of a, an unconfirmed, but PE, that she had reported. Arborizing purpura in the setting of they trigger probably being her, her preceding strep throat infection, which caused her protein C to drop. And she was under, otherwise sitting with the uh, ability or the proclivity to have an antiphospholipid syndrome, meaning the clinical manifestations of having an antiphospholipid antibody positive status. So she has the antiphospholipid antibody syndrome. And again, I say the trigger because, well, she had these antibodies circulating well before this event, likely, but what made her express it at that time? So it's defined as having greater than or equal to one clinical and greater than or equal to one hematologic criterion as defined by recurrent venous or arterial thrombosis. So her pulmonary embolism would count. Her cutaneous ischemia would count. Or having pregnancy loss. Hematologically, you need to either have the presence of antiphospholipid antibodies, again, the specific test, or two nonspecific tests, the lupus anticoagulant tests, uh, that both report positive with a 12-week interval in between. 50% of these cases come along with an associated rheumatologic or other autoimmune disease. This is a disorder of female dominance, very dramatic female dominance during the, uh, during the uh, years of a woman's reproductive life cycle, so usually considered between the ages of 13 and 45 to 50. The order of prevalence is about 13 to 1 for lupus in females compared to males. And the risk of vascular occlusion affecting other organs is very significant. Avascular necrosis, TIAs, miscarriage, and nephropathy. All right, next case, evanescent nodules and malaise. So this is a 53-year-old patient of mine with a six-month history of worsening evanescent nodules. And I kid you not, these lesions would present in great number, as what you see, and he and his wife both would completely corroborate that within a couple of weeks of presentation, all of the nodules would completely spontaneously resolve. Something I found very, very hard to believe until we proved what he had. So um, they would initially present, fully resolve, initially, you know, represent, and resolve, and every time they presented, they seemed to present with a greater number of lesions. The scar on the upper left is actually an excisional biopsy that I did of one of the larger lesions um, that was present. You can't see it now, it's gone. Um, but because someone had previously done a two millimeter punch biopsy on this guy. I mean, come on, you got like so much material. A two millimeter punch. It was non-diagnostic, patient was sent in through our office and this is what the image I took after I operated on him. These are his images on that same day. And you know, don't neglect to look, sorry, at the face as well. So he has, you know, large tumors even on the cheek, on the submental region. He was covered. So histopathology revealed sheets of large mononuclear cells, prominent atypia, scattered mitotic figures, notably both CD4 and CD30 positive and ALK1 negative. His labs were essentially normal. Uh, PET-CT, no evidence of any internal disease. 
And he was diagnosed with cutaneous anaplastic large cell lymphoma. This is a CD30 positive lymphoproliferative malignancy that represents a very small portion, only 12% of all cutaneous T-cell lymphomas, more common in males than females. 20% of cases will provide with a multifocal presentation, such as he did, so he's even in the rarer cohort of those rare cutaneous malignancies of ALCL. And they may have spontaneous regression. How many of you have heard of lymphomatoid papulosis? So lymphomatoid papulosis is another CD30, another CD30 positive lymphoproliferative malignancy of the skin, deriving itself from T cells that rep, that uh, that. Um, gosh, I'm sorry, it's been a lot of words today, this is my third lecture, that express a lot of CD30 antigen on their surface. And they tend to be very small, come up in crops in a limited portion of the body surface at any given time, maybe a crop over here on the arm and a crop on the thigh, and they undergo spontaneous remission. But this was the first gentleman I had ever seen that had this degree of impressiveness with regard to a presentation of anaplastic large cell lymphoma, usually again being a solitary lesion so we had these huge tumors that would spontaneously re remit, much like LYP, and cutaneous ALCL has been reported to do this. Just an impressive case. So in order to make this diagnosis, you should not have a prior history of mycosis fungoides, patch plaque disease, and if you do, and you biopsy a tumor and it's CD30 positive, you must then consider that the patient actually had CD30 transformation of their mycosis fungoides, which is a very aggressive form of cutaneous T-cell lymphoma, distinct from cutaneous anaplastic large cell lymphoma. So many times in, in cutaneous ALCL, you will have a CD-dominant T-cell phenotype, a variable loss of CD2 and CD5, like we see in most cutaneous lymphomas. CD30 expression will be present in the majority of cells, but this ALK negative status there, this ALK negative status is what distinguishes it from systemic anaplastic large cell lymphoma. A very, very important distinction to make. So if, you're, if your pathologist doesn't know better, ALK1 is a really important test to do in anything that's CD30 positive in a patient without a preceding history of MF. So we started with methotrexate, gave it a few weeks, he got pretty sick, and basically I turned to my, my oncology colleague friend and said, this guy can't live like this, he's incredibly uncomfortable, he can't go to work, he's literally disfigured by this on his face and his extremities. Um, can we give him brentuximab, a CD30 monoclonal antibody that's FDA approved for Cesare syndrome? So we pulled a couple arms at the facility and got him brentuximab, and I kid you not, in five weeks this is what his presentation looked like. Very happy. So primary cutaneous anaplastic large cell lymphoma treated with brentuximab. Ulcer and pancytopenia. So this was a 33-year-old female that I met in the hospital a month postpartum. Very sad case. She had been previously healthy. She became pancytopenic toward the end of her pregnancy and went into the hospital when she had a fever and was just having a very, very difficult time swallowing because of an enlarging ulcer in the back of her mouth. Um, I then, just before she went in, she started to have a small ulceration that was sort of rapidly expanding in the days before she came into the hospital. She felt lousy, she was weak, um, no family or social history that seemed to be contributory, and she lacked other organ-specific or constitutional findings. No cough. This was a picture of her armpit. You can see that really, really well de described as we read about in uh, this particular diagnosis of an undermined margin on that ulceration. 
These were the best images I could get of the back of her mouth, those uh, full thickness ulcerations with what you can see as necrotic debris, especially on the posterior aspect of her left oral pharynx. And her blood work was really not all that remarkable. Her cultures were negative. She remained pancytopenic as she had been diagnosed in the last month of her pregnancy. And this was a biopsy from her axilla. This was getting the margin of normal skin and abnormal skin, the ulcer and the adjacent normal skin. And it's hard to see here, but these are fraught with neutrophils. So this is a neutrophilic ulcer. The gram stains were negative, no identifiable material for cult in culture. And she was diagnosed with pyoderma gangrenosum and pyostomatitis. There are various clinical forms of pyoderma gangrenosum that which is bullous, pustular, or ulcerative from the primary get-go. It's a common disease in the younger population of females. I'm sorry, I shouldn't say it's a common disease. As a general rule, it is not a common disease, but if it is going to happen, it will happen more commonly in your younger female population. Over 50% of the time, you'll have associated medical comorbidities within this population, so inflammatory bowel disease, inflammatory arthritis, and myeloproliferative disorders are most common. And for any of you who might be interested in heme path, this is actually a, an image of her bone marrow biopsy. So given her pancytopenia and the diagnosis of pyoderma gangrenosum, we sent her for a bone marrow biopsy while she was in the hospital. And unfortunately, she was diagnosed with acute myelogenous leukemia and did not survive her diagnosis. Next is a young woman that I met a couple years ago with what I'll call scaling plaques and failure to thrive. 14 years old. She was an immigrant from Mexico, undocumented, looking for help. Having dealt with this for four years, she had had progressive scaling plaques. She had had failure to thrive for the better part of four years. Very um, young looking for her age of 14. She had plaques primarily involving the face, the upper extremities, her lower extremities, her nails. As you can see, the palpebral margins are fraught with this sort of dusky, brawny-looking erythema with exfoliative scales, as are the you know, perinasal region, mid-portion mid of the glabella. She also had fatigue, diarrhea, hair loss, and poor weight gain. Another face front, looking at her images of the nails and her face. Perioral involvement specifically of the commissures and sublabial region. So on a biopsy, she showed very scant acanthosis, meaning thickening of the epidermis. She had a basket weave stratum corneum. But what's really impressive is this zone here of the superficial epidermis. We call it a zone of pallor of the superficial epidermal keratinocytes. Clearly, oops, these keratinocytes are staining very differently than these keratinocytes. So I started the workup based on the zone of pallor. We learned this in our residencies. There are only a couple things that tend to do this. Nutritional deficiencies, specifically zinc, and glucagonomas. So her zinc was normal, and her glucagon was over 3,000. So I ordered a CT scan to look at her pancreas, and there we had it, a 4.3 by 3.4 by 2.9 centimeter mass in her pancreas. Glucagonoma. It's a rare neuroendocrine tumor that arises in the alpha cells of the pancreas. And glucagon, acting directly on the liver, increases both amino acid oxidation and gluconeogenesis, which is why many patients that end up with glucagonoma either have concurrent or preceding diabetes. Uh, and they believe this happens from the amino acid substrate. So you're sort of a, um, a hypercatabolism problem in, in this scenario. 
and necrolytic migratory erythema, which is the cutaneous manifestation of glucagonoma syndrome, results from this lack of nutrition and amino acid deficiency. So what was her intervention? We sent her to my surgical colleague, uh, and he did a Whipple. 14 years of age, had a Whipple procedure. This is actually her pancreas. <laughs> so I had the resident take an image on the blue drape, and then I had to have him like circle things because I don't know what the pancreas really looks like, you know, grossly. Um, but that's his surgical instrument going through it, and that is, as you can see, the mass of the glucagonoma outlined in the circle. And this was her still in the hospital. This is less than one week postoperatively. Her lesions were gone. This is her two months after her um, glucagonoma had been excised with the Whipple. She's got mass. She has substance. Um, and she felt great. And it was awesome to be a part of that case. Her arms were totally clear. Her nails were clear. Her belly was clear. And there's her Whipple scar. She wanted to show that off in a picture. You can see she's got substance to her. Okay, mucositis and anorexia. Is this too fast for everyone, by the way? Or is everything okay? All right, good. I'm trying to get through 12. Uh, 48-year-old, previously healthy Vietnamese male that I met in the hospital with a two-week history of fever, oral ulcerations, and skin lesions. His three-day history of anorexia was really just secondary to pain. He was hungry, but he couldn't eat. And three days on acyclovir had elicited no improvement, which is why they decided to call dermatology. So I would call this terrible stomatitis. If anyone's ever had anything that ulcerated their lip, they bite their lip, they bite their tongue, it hurts. This is intractable pain. Uh, so he also was noted to have photophobia, of course the bleeding gums, sore tongue, lips, and throat, the anorexia, as I mentioned, secondary to pain, fatigue, fever, and his blisters that were forming on his skin were tender. He worked in insulation, and he was around pigeon feces. He thought, God, I've been exposed to something. ID had been on board for at least a week, ordering everything left and right. Everything was negative, except he was identified as having a post-exposure to hepatitis B, not active, but not, neither was he immune. Nothing relevant. And this was him in the hospital bed. Again, that palpebral hyperemia, the blistering right at the ocular commissure the intractable stomatitis, I mean the pain in his mouth, he just basically laid there, he was so uncomfortable. And you can see these blisters on his lower extremities. Um, I have to admit, I didn't get a great picture of the variation in the quality of lesions, but he had both tense and flaccid blisters, and he had erythema multiforme and lichenoid type papules as his skin exam. So a polymorphic presentation of a blistering disease. And there's that explanation. He also had diffuse lymphadenopathy inguinal and submandibular lymphadenopathy. So we started our workup, and his ANA was negative, but his double-stranded DNA was positive, which was unusual. And the pathology and DIF findings were consistent with diffuse acantholysis, so the keratinocytes are literally falling apart from one another. That's the definition of acantholysis. There was a lichenoid interface dermatosis, meaning there were lymphocytes lining up along the DE junction, and the DIF, the direct immunofluorescence, was positive for both C3 and IgG at the interface. So he has this constellation of findings. It, it's kind of hard to say, well, is it just one thing? But that's the common finding in this particular disease. This is his DIF. 
It's lighting up everywhere. It's lighting up at the DE junction. It's lighting up in at the intercellular spaces of the keratinocytes in sort of this basket weave area. You can see this is skin on cross section, but this lighting up at the DE junction, or I could outline the DE junction here. And we got indirect immunofluorescence, and it was positive for perineoplastic pemphigus antibodies. So not to disregard the possibility of perineoplastic pemphigus in any of your patients that have a chronic blistering disease, especially the blistering disease with intractable stomatitis, the oral findings, and those that have polymorphic lesions on their skin. They have tense blisters, they have flaccid blisters, because they are manifesting antibodies to everything and anything, to the basement membrane, which would give you the subepidermal blister. I have a talk on blistering disorders later, so we'll get into that in more detail. Uh, to the intercellular spaces between the keratinocytes, as we would otherwise see in pemphigus, and they have lichenoid inflammation that looks like lichen planus, and they get erythema multiforme because of the deposition of antibodies in various places as well. So they have that polymorphic clinical presentation and intractable stomatitis. You must you must order indirect immunofluorescence for perineoplastic pemphigus antibodies. He was positive across the board. So perineoplastic phenomenon was first described uh, by Anhalt in 1990, characterized by painful oral ulcerations, bullous skin lesions, oftentimes polymorphic. The histology reveals these variable findings. The DIF will often be LP-like, so right IgG, C3, basement membrane, or BP-like, and indirect will be positive against the squamous and transitional epithelium. Whoops, sorry, intractable stomatitis again, don't forget about that. Um, the extracutaneous complications, so ocular erosions, symblepharon, and corneal scarring, you must get an ophthalmologist involved, that's why he had photophobia. Pulmonary dyspnea may be subtle, but can quickly lead to bronchiolitis obliterans. Show of hands, has anyone ever had a patient with lung involvement with dermatomyositis, bronchiolitis obliterans? These patients literally go down before your eyes. They will be walking around the pod, will have a couple cough coughs. Maybe they feel like <clears throat> they gotta clear their throat, another couple cough coughs, and all of a sudden, they can't breathe. So if, you're, if a patient ever has a perineoplastic pemphigus diagnosis in your hands, please just always remember to let them know that if they get any sort of pulmonary compromise, they essentially are calling 911 and going to the emergency room because they may decompensate even on their way. So both malignant and benign neoplasms have been described in patients with perineoplastic pemphigus. Most commonly, it's a non-Hodgkin's lymphoma. That's over 40% of patients. COL, 30% of patients. Castleman's disease, as was present in this patient, 10% of patients. Thymomas are 6% of the population. Sarcomas and Waldenstrom's macroglobulinemia make up the rest. And there he is after treatment for his malignancy. Very happy guy. severe abdominal pain and postpartum status. This was a 34-year-old woman that I met eight weeks postpartum. She'd had a C-section early due to preeclampsia at 34 weeks, went home for a week, and for then the subsequent seven weeks had had progressive severe abdominal pain. I call it necrotic pain. You couldn't let the sheet in the bed touch her abdomen or she was I mean, in excruciating pain, squealing, screaming pain. She had been through five courses of oral antibiotics unsuccessfully. When you hit course number three and it's not working, um, but no one had given her anything other than those sequential courses of antibiotics. Again, she's you know postpartum, she had a C-section, reasonable thing to assume initially, NSAIDs and opiates to control her pain. 
So she's sitting in the hospital bed, hasn't seen her child in seven weeks, because they keep telling her she probably has an infection. Um, she had suffered severe preeclampsia, so she didn't really have a fun end of her pregnancy to begin with. Um, and then, you know, I'm talking to her, and she gives me this, this history, and I really had to pull it out of her. That, oh, yeah, 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 I had, um, I had my gallstone problem when I was, a, you know, several years ago when I was a teenager, and they took out um, some gallstone, and they said I had inflammation of the pancreas. Anyhow, so I was reeling in that history, thinking, I'm going to re-CT re her. Because I, mean, I was going through records, and we had already gotten some reports from her previous admissions, where they were, again, treating her with antibiotics and opiates. Uh, so she really demonstrated this incredibly um, impressive peau d'orange change. I'm going to try to outline it here. The lighting in the hospital is not always the best. And it kind of goes out to here. That's actually my biopsy. But it, 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 it looked like a peau d'orange type change. It went on that totic aspect of her abdomen, uh, kind of on the over, overlying part of the panis and then to the underside of the panis. And if you notice, I can just tell you, I don't wear silver nail polish. These are her nails. So she had to pick up her abdomen because she was so afraid of anyone getting anywhere near her to touch her that she wouldn't let me actually move up her abdominal skin to take the image. Exquisitely sensitive. I call it necrotic type pain. It's the kind of pain that we see in necrotizing fasciitis, which is why I call it necrotic pain, where the pain outcompetes what you're clinically seeing. Doesn't look like it should be that painful. This was sort of the underside. So the workup. These were some of the labs that had originally been done in our hospital. CBC, UA, CMP, blood cultures were negative. I was looking at outside records and saw that her lipase had previously been um, elevated and that there was some really poorly descript inflammatory stranding in the subcutaneous tissue without any frank evidence of necrosis. And again, that was from her previous hospitalization. But given the degree of pain and her history that she was telling me she'd had pancreatitis from a gallstone in the past, so I'm going to re-CT her. And there it was, extensive fat atrophy of the pancreas with hepatomegaly. We did an incisional biopsy. And there, it, I mean, this is a great, great, I don't know if many of you have had all that much dermpath ex exposure, but this is like fluffy, you know, lavender change on the fat lobules due to the calcium staining that happens in, uh, in a, the paniculitis associated with pancreatitis. It's called pancreatic paniculitis, and it's a very, very specific finding we see with that type of liquefactive from the pancreatic enzymes, liquefactive fat necrosis. Normally, this would stain in sort of a yellowy tone. So there we have it. She has pancreatic paniculitis. So it's a rare complication of pancreatitis. Anyone that gets pancreatitis can have pancreatic paniculitis, but it actually only happens in about 2% of that population. Usually it's demonstrated as a skin manifestation with indurated nodules or plaques, very, very exquisitely painful. Occasionally will drain an oily-like fluid. Predilection for the trunk and lower extremities and risk factors in general for just pancreatitis or alcoholism. Well, she had been pregnant, she wasn't drinking. Obesity, she had obesity. Hypertriglyceridemia, I don't even remember. Gallstone occlusion, which she had had in the past, which probably created some anatomical damage to her actual pancreas. And preeclampsia, which I learned from this case is actually another risk factor for pancreatitis. I hadn't realized that. So we did 
we put her NPO and we did a complete abdominal paniculectomy of the entirety of that totic, uh, abdominal panis. And anyone else would consider this painful postoperatively looking at, I don't know, 100 staples going across her abdomen. And she was the happiest woman in the world. She, I mean, this pain, she said, oh, no, 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 this is not painful. I feel great. I haven't felt great in seven weeks. And she was happy and discharged three days after surgery. Go see her, kiddo. Necrotic ulcerations and dementia. I'm gonna go through this one a little bit quickly. This is a really, really esoteric diagnosis, but it points out a few key features that I want you to see clinically. 41-year-old male professor, mild hypertensive history, had a truncal rash that had begun three months ago, altered mental status, foot ulcers for a couple months, and then was, up, as he went into the hospital, identified as having an acute renal injury, and over the course of just a few months had now lost 50 pounds. Let's piece through this. He had had a poor appetite for a while and then recently lost a lot of weight. So the evaluation of the outside facility had included a lot of labs which were normal. You can see them above. And then they did brain imaging because of his altered mental status. Here was a very educated professor for many years who's all of a sudden acting a little bit kooky. Bilateral symmetric confluent white matter with increased flare signaling. I'm not a you know, neuroradiologist, but basically they had thought that these represented small infarcts in the brain. They did do a brain biopsy. In my institution, they actually have a lot of neurosurgical intervention, and um, th those were negative for any distinct pathology. But this is a picture of his foot. And if you can kind of hallucinate a little bit with me, it kind of makes out a little bit of a stellate or star-like presentation of the ulceration. And here you can see the side of his ankle. Again, that's sort of, if I could make this, um, kind of undulating edges that almost look spoke-like or star-like, coupled with this arborizing appearance of purpura. So he has ulcerations in an arterial distribution, stellate or star-like necrosis, and there I drew it for you in case you didn't believe me. Uh, Rediform purpura, which you'll see again here, that arborizing network. And a history of encephalopathy, renal failure, and poor appetite. So I'm having some issues. I'm really trying to put together this case. And I, got, I have to tell you, I, I feel like somebody was looking out for me. And I just got this idea that I should probably lift up his shirt. And I found this solitary, what we call porcelain white. This was truly white, white with the pink background. But this area here is really white, white. And it's an atrophic sort of depressed white, white that's honestly seen very, very specifically in only this diagnosis. And that was on his chest. Biopsy revealed mid-sized vessel wall thickening. These are stains that show the CD34, which is an endothelial cell. And this shows that there's extra um, ground substance that just shows the basement or the, the membrane of the wall of the blood vessel is thickening and closing in. So this ends up being an occlusive vasculopathy related to the actual production of material intravascularly as a part of the vessel wall. An arterial uh, occlusive arteriopathy of small to medium vessels. This is called malignant atrophic papulosis or Dagos disease. Have anybody heard of Dagos disease? So there's a benign, very limited cutaneous involvement, and then there's the malignant variant, malignant not suggesting actual malignancy, but a much more aggressive, um, poorer prognosis. And that happens when you see those porcelain white atrophic 
punched in looking lesions with an erythematous background on the trunk. They oftentimes have this vaso-occlusive arteriopathy of the gastrointestinal system and the central nervous system, which explained his poor appetite. He wasn't perfusing his bowel and as well his lacunar infarcts. Okay, draining abscesses and arthritis. This we're gonna go through very quickly, but it's just to suggest again, never forget about our patients who really do struggle with some of the diseases we see even commonly. So this is a 16-year-old male. With, he was previously a healthy football player. I will never forget the day he walked into my office because I stand at the far end of sort of a track as patients come in. My rooms are on this side of the office and he literally, sprawling, you know, big 16-year-old guy kind of shuffled into the office, hunched over. I mean, his feet were moving inches at a time. He had been initiated on Accutane for acne and two weeks thereafter developed this very fulminating acute onset of draining nodules, abscesses, and fissures in terrible places, terrible, terrible places. He'd been in the hospital for uh, almost a full six weeks, hospitalized three times, home for a couple days in between each, and then he was discharged and said to come to my office. So he literally came into my office walking that way. Had been on antibiotics. Uh, this was a picture of his axilla. This was a picture of his tush and the back of his thighs. Uh, this was a limited picture of his genitalia. I could not literally separate the scrotum from the thighs because they were stuck together. The actual prominence of his abscesses and drainage was in that inner curl region. Uh, and you can see he's wearing a pad. 16-year-old, he was a football player and a swimmer in high school. Hasn't been to school in six weeks. So we did some labs. And this is what we identified. He you know, had leukocytosis, elevated CRP and ESR. His platelets were slightly elevated. And I threw him on prednisone, 40 milligrams a day for 10 days, and then down to 20 milligrams daily thereafter for the balance of the month. <laughs> Trental, pentoxyphylline, which I call my poor man's anti-TNF therapy. This is pre-Humira indication for HS, by the way. Oh, I'm sorry. And this is HS, I should mention to you. Uh, Hydronitis separativa a disease for which I have a lot of passion in treating, and I would encourage each and every one of you, every time you ever see a patient with hydradenitis separativa, to step out of the room and just take a deep breath and remember, they are gonna walk out of your office with exactly the same disease state as they walked in with, and you're gonna be able to move on to your next patient. And we've gotta do everything we can in that 10 minutes we have with them to make it worth their while. This is a disease we have to change the tra trajectory of a life, or people go downhill in a lot of ways very, very quickly. So put him on zinc, he, I let him stay on the clindamycin uh, on which he was discharged from the hospital and I gave him some oxycodone for pain. Um, this was him when I saw him, I think it was like three weeks or maybe it was even two weeks later. And um, this is nothing. He's been on Humira, we, had, we used it off label before it was approved and he's been clear um, ever since with the one exception when he thought he was so clear he was just gonna stop and again, his disease recurred. Uh, but I mean, you can almost not even find the post-inflammatory hyperpigmentation on this, on this kid anymore. I was invited to his high school graduation. He went back to school and actually graduated on time a couple years ago, and that was pretty awesome. Um, he was the first kid in his family actually to graduate from high school. Disease exists with several associated medical comorbidities. Don't forget about the arthritis comorbidity, Crohn's and UC, endocrinopathies and metabolic disorders, as well as, and cannot be underemphasized, the depression and addiction disorders. And that's why I say we have to take this very, very seriously because we're changing the entire trajectory of a life. 
Uh, who knows what comes first, depression or addiction disorders, they have to deal with so much. Um, as a dermatology uh, you know, provider, we need to own this disease. And also not to forget that this disease can be a part of other genetic syndromes. All right, four more to go. Who's with me? All right. Rash and liver transplant. So this guy was waiting for a liver transplant. He had a history of alcohol abuse. Comes in, he's 36 years old, with another alcohol-induced uh, exacerbation of hepatitis. He had admitted to binge drinking three weeks prior, had malaise, had jaundice. He was, had jaundice. He was placed on uh, 60 milligrams of prednisone for the first several days of his hospitalization. And he actually was starting to feel a little bit better. 60 milligrams a day of prednisone is a pretty good way to treat alcoholic hepatitis. We give them supportive care, and usually they go home, and hopefully they're not taken off the transplant list when this happens. His labs look like they look when you're in an acute hepatitis episode. Um, his INR was three, his LDH was 506. You can see his LFTs are elevated, albumin's low. His abdomen showed his classic nodular liver with his ascites. Uh, he was a little not lucid, of course, with his hepatitis, so they did a head CT, didn't find that he had fallen or had any other intracranial pathology. And his hospital course started to go downhill, which is when we got involved. So his white cell count now increased to 18.9. His INR increased from 3 to 7, so it's really decompensated liver failure at this point in time. Starts to have hematemesis, gets transferred to the unit for airway protection, and then all of a sudden he develops his cutaneous findings. So we got called in looking at this. Again, we're talking about an arborizing or retiform branching type of purpura. He looks yellow because he's yellow. He's really that yellow. And again, in case you couldn't tell, I tried to draw for you this arborizing network. You can see my biopsy. So we know we have an acute on chronic liver injury. He's now been treated with more immunosuppression to combat his hepatitis. He's given 60 milligrams of prednisone. And while his liver was initially recovering, he then goes on to deteriorate, requiring airway support. His mental status totally declined. Um, all of his you know, measures from his INR to his renal function and so forth were getting worse. And then he had a GI bleed. And we're looking at this going, well, he's got vasculotropic blanchable erythema. Again, a vasculopathic type pattern of arborizing purpura. This isn't your macular or your maculopapular rash from a morbilliform eruption in the setting of you know, viral infection or drug. This is true arborizing erythema, which is why our eyes are so important. We've got to be able to pick up on those distinctions. And this was a total win for us because we actually beat the lab. And um, unfortunately, the patient didn't do very well. But these two cells, this one right here and this one right here, are the classic owl eye inclusion you see in CMV that has endotheliotropic uh, tendency or dissemination. So this gentleman had a disseminated CMV that came along because CMV is housed in the liver as a lymphoid organ uh, as a part of his hepatitis and then subsequent additional immunosuppression he reactivated CMV, disseminated CMV and that's what led to the second hit in his hospital stay. So we identified it in the pathology, and then the lab a day later came back with CMV very high. Just to remember, the teaching point in this is that all of our liver cirrhotic patients are inherently immunocompromised patients, just by virtue of the fact that they have cirrhosis, because the liver is a major lymphoid organ.
So ultimately, unfortunately, this patient too decompensated with a large rupture of an esophageal varix. And on his, uh, sorry, on his autopsy, they did find disseminated CMV throughout his lung and substantial hepatic necrosis from CMV. Okay, erosions, blindness, and tracheal stenosis. Another hospital case. 59-year-old female presented with blindness spontaneously at the age of 49 that was considered due to uncertain etiology. Now, I have to tell you that this woman and her sister, who were who was my historian, um, were not the most educated health historians I've ever met. Why did she spontaneously go blind at 49? We don't know. Did you look into it? I think so. You went to a doctor? Yeah, we went to a doctor. No, no one could know, no one knew. So she just went blind. She just went blind. Okay, uh, so she was complaining of a five-month history of a rapid progression of erosive changes on her scalp with associated alopecia. So she had erosive changes and she was losing her hair in those areas. She was admitted, however, not because of that, but because her sister said she's having an asthma exacerbation. She has asthma. She's had that for a few years, too, as an adult. And she's just having one of those exacerbations. Well, she got in for her asthma exacerbation and she rapidly progressed to having tracheal stenosis and requiring intubation. Sorry, I didn't mean to touch my mic. So we do a biopsy on that scalp and find that there's a subepidermal vesicular split, no increase in eosinophils, but the DIF was strongly positive right at the, at the subepidermal membrane, at the dermal epidermal junction for IgG and C3. And her bullous pemphigoid antibodies were strikingly positive. So this was a case of cicatricial pemphigoid, otherwise known as mucous membrane pemphigoid, a rare form that's a scarring form of bullous pemphigoid with a tendency to affect the skin and the mucous membranes. Can lead to complications of muco involving mucosa of the eye, hence her blindness, respiratory compromise, her tracheal stenosis, which required intubations, and also oral ulcerations, which I couldn't look for because she had a tube going down her mouth to make her breathe. This was the initial presentation. We gave her IV solumedrol for 10 days, it's only 60 milligrams a day, and this is how much she had improved by 10 days thereafter. So ultimately she was discharged on immunosuppressive regimen and she is doing better. She was also taken off of the vent. Exfoliative plaques and diarrhea. So 73-year-old male with a one-year history of pruritic expansive exfoliative plaques on his buttocks and lower extremities he had this kind of pattern of a serpiginous uh, presentation where there would be almost central clearing as it would expand peripherally. He had been struck with what he was, I mean, you're trying to go through a review of systems because the guys had this peritic rash for a year and it clinically just didn't look like something incredibly discreet. And the only thing he could say was, I've had diarrhea for like a year and I was recently diagnosed with diabetes like six months ago. And so you know, was it the diabetic meds? No, because the diabetes had, uh, or the diarrhea, excuse me, had preceded the diagnosis of diabetes. And these are the images. I've got to admit, I didn't know how cool of a case this was when I first saw him. So this is, these are images taken into treatment, and he does look a little bit better, quite a bit better here. We initially had bandaged him for his itch and for the just cutaneous inflammatory reaction while we were waiting for studies to be uh, diagnostic um, with topical steroids and some UVB in the office. And he did get 
better. And then he would kind of flare again and flare worse each and every time, which ultimately led to a rebiopsy. So um, I guess that's just about what I said. He did have a very prominent involvement of sort of the intergluteal region as well as he progressed and the scrotum and inguinal perineal region. And so his pathology revealed slight epidermal spongiosis, scant longer Hun cells, and a paucity of eosinophils. And again, I'm not sure how well it's projecting. Um, I can see it here, but this upper portion of the epidermis is again showing more pallor here than the lower portion of the epidermis. Again, sort of cuts off right about here. So we're seeing that superficial epidermal keratinocyte pallor. For any of you that were paying attention earlier, that might sound familiar. We see that in very few disorders in the skin, which led to the further workup. He did have an elevated amylase lipase and alkphos. His zinc was normal, and he had a strikingly high glucagon as well. I brought this case, both of these cases in um, to show you the distinction. This diagnosis is incredibly rare. I'm sure most of you and your co-providers will go their entire career without ever meeting anyone with a glucagonoma, and yet, I've had two cases in the past couple of years. So anyhow, this gentleman was also identified. This is his actual CT image, um, having, a, having a, a, C, a mass in his pancreas as well that was ultimately diagnosed by biopsy of being a glucagonoma. And this was just a copy and pasted slide, which you've all seen in the other case. Um, but that was the definition, that was the, um, the um, reason why he had diabetes Necrolytic migratory erythema, again, being the cutaneous manifestation of glucagonoma. Patient underwent a partial pancreatectomy and a splenectomy, and literally, he was in my office a few weeks later, and this is what he looked like, and his diabetes had completely resolved. Pretty cool case. And lastly, you can't conclude a case in Arizona, a case series of interesting things without going through one of these. So rash and hyalur lymphadenopathy. That was a big clue, by the way. So this is a woman I met in the hospital setting with this sort of urticarial and, more, and um, uh, almost EM-like indurated erythematous plaque distribution that was very broad. She had been managed with Remicade and methotrexate for her underlying diagnosis of rheumatoid arthritis for a while. She presented with a fairly acute onset, three-day history of fever and chills, followed by the onset of her rash on her abdomen, which then spread diffusely. She felt sick, she had a cough and shortness of breath, joint pain, lacked headache, abdominal pain, or swelling. She worked at the facility where I saw her in their microbiology department. Another hint. <laughs> so she clearly had a leukocytosis with bandemia. Um, creatinine was a little bit elevated. She was very hypoxic. She was requiring respiratory support. And on her chest, you could see this bilateral necrotic consolidations as are in the posterior aspect of her lungs and uh, mediastinal lymphadenopathy. She was febrile, ill-appearing, but alert and cooperative. And this, these are some other images of her presentation. So her coxie serology has come back negative. Coxie, again, is valley fever, something that is endemic here. And yet, her cutaneous pathology showed mixed perivascular dermatitis, no necrotic keratinocytes, which when you see anything that looks like EM and does not have necrotic keratinocytes, you have to think about the cutaneous reaction to valley fever. So I just gave, gave it up. But um, ultimately, she was diagnosed with valley fever through her bronchoscopy, which was cultured, and identified coccidiotomycosis. 
It's one of the most challenging things we have to contend with here when we have an acutely ill patient with respiratory compromise and acutaneous rash that could meet any of the several varieties of reactive changes related to valley fever is the coxyserologies are oftentimes not very predictable. So if they're positive from the get-go, you're good. If they're negative, you have to keep working to try to find the diagnosis. So she was ultimately, like I said, um, identified through bronchoscopy, treated with diflucan, and did very well, pretty quickly reversed. And so to, man to, to mention to any of you who will practice in this area, or there are some neighboring areas that are also endemic for valley fever, uh, remember that there are several different reactive changes that can happen that do not have visible organisms in the skin, but they are reactive to systemic uh, coccidiotomycosis. And they're typically erythema nodosum-like, sweets-like, or uh, a GA, interstitial granulomatous disease, like presentation, or the erythema multiforme-like presentation that she had. Um, and again, on that particular histology, you will not see the necrotic keratinocytes that otherwise are identifiable in erythema multiforme proper. The epidemiology in the United States, about 100,000 cases per year in Arizona. We have seen a dramatic increase in the number of um, cases per year, and actually very recently. This is a disorder that is uh, oftentimes present in patients with compromised host immunity from either medications or other comorbid diagnoses. And this is a nice map of just where we tend to see um, coccidiotomycosis. And there we go. There's a nice review article by David Ducato here from Mayo Clinic uh, back in 2006, I think. Yeah, 2006, which goes into a review of all of the cutaneous findings of valley fever. And I think... That's going to do it. Thank you very, very much for your presentation. I hope that that was in, for attention to my presentation. Hope that was entertaining. The overall performance of the speaker. How useful will this session be in your practice? As a result of this program, do you intend to change your patient care? You intend to do hospital consults, right? <laughs> Can be fun. Always. And there are some patients I don't even bother to ask, but I do get consent before taking uh, photos of any patient. And um, as you noticed, there were only a few that allowed me to use their eyes or any real identifiers. And in those scenarios, I'm very, very clear that this could be an image that somebody else identifies. I've even had patients actually ask me to use them as a teaching case because they don't want whatever happened to them to happen to other patients. So for the most part, patients seem to be very open to it, but always ask. Uh, what would you see if you biopsied one of his ulcers, the Dago's patient, or the purpura? So yeah, so that hyalinizing change inside the, the cutaneous vasculature is exactly what you see. And if you were to get into a piece that is purely the ulcer, you'd see dead tissue on top, you'd see really no viable epidermis, probably no viable superficial dermis, but in the deeper parts of the dermis, you'll actually find those vessels with the hyalinization, the PAS resistant, um, you know, they'll do stains on it to see what the material is. 
and its fibrin deposition from the vessel. HS, why zinc for HS? So um, zinc sulfate has actually been shown to have nice anti-neutrophilic properties. Again, you know, when you're sort of waiting to get something else and uh, maybe the patient can't afford something more expensive or you're waiting to get approval for Humira for something and you're gonna use a combination of Trental and zinc supplementally, it's something that can just sort of probably lower the threshold of whatever else has to be done. But it's anti-neutrophilic properties specifically. Uh, HS Accutane case, 16-year-old. Boy, do you think the isotretinoin caused the severe? I do. Uh, there are reports of idiosyncratic reactions to isotretinoin, which cause sort of the acne inversa, which is another word for HS, the phrase for HS, to um, idiosyncratically get worse. Much like we've had psoriasis idiosyncratically arise in patients, you know, treated for with Humira or Enbrel uh, for rheumatoid arthritis, say, and, you know, or, you know, present then with psoriasis. Great cases, ACEs. are you finding monotherapy with Humira to be effective or are you needing to use multiple therapies? Uh, the majority of time I find Humira monotherapy to be exquisitely good and yet when you're talking about a disorder that causes so much morbidity from the perspective of pain, social isolation, um, you know, embarrassment, depression, uh, it is a disease of such great consequence that many times I'll throw a little bit of extra something for maintenance. Sometimes it's zinc, sometimes it's Trentel, sometimes it's spironolactone. Um, sometimes we just leave them on Humira monotherapy and they do amazing. And once a year, they need a little antibiotic course for a week to get over a tiny flare that's just in an uncomfortable spot. So all of the above would be my answer to that. But many times monotherapy is awesome. And patients love not needing a lot. HS, regarding the teen, do you think that Accutane played a role in the onset? Yes, if not, uh, if not, and his acne was severe, would you or did you restart him? No, so I would never touch that kid with, that, with isotretinoin again. I think I did that one, yeah. Uh, yeah, okay, yes. <laughs> in your case of HS, oh, <laughs> yes, again. Yeah, I know, and, and it is true. Um, indeed, th there are cases where isotretinoin actually plays a very favorable role in the treatment of HS, and how do we know when this could be a problem? The answer is we don't. I think we have so many things that are good for HS, however, that can eliminate the need for isotretinoin. I have essentially aborted use of isotretinoin, for lack of a better term, in this patient population, unless it is an acne severity that I otherwise just have to contend with. Um, because of the patient's emotional state. You know, they, they are very disabled by their acne. Okay, so I, I think I just did the last one there. Is there are there more to scroll? Um, right, no, so in that particular individual, once I, uh, once I initi initiated Humira, did I continue the Trental, Prednisone, and Clinda? No, I tapered. Uh, the prednisone to nothing very quickly, and then a month later actually had him off of the Clinda, and then another month later had him off of the Trentel. Um, I'm sorry, where, where are we? Is your arrow where we are? No. Okay, so yes. Mm, yes. <laughs> uh, no, I don't use it in all my HS patients and the neutrophilic impact. Um, is there a reason why Accutane wasn't given for longer duration as opposed to two weeks to see clinical improvement? 
Um, talking about the boy going into the hospital, it was stopped in the hospital, the isotretinoin. So, he, um, so for that particular individual, he was not given isotretinoin to treat HS. He was given isotretinoin to treat acne. He had zero evidence of any HS before he went into Accutane therapy. And he fulminated with his HS. Uh, can you elaborate more on this treatment, Trentel? So it is, so, so not for acute flares. It is still a treatment protocol, though I will implement for, again, chronic ongoing maintenance. Pentoxyphylene has both fibrinolytic activity, which can help to revise scarring, especially in earlier stage scarring, which these patients are essentially always going through, and also actually has decent anti-TNF activity. Not enough to be considered in any way immunosuppressive. Um, Antineutrophilic activity. And do I use Trentel for Haley Haley? I have not used Trentel for Haley Haley. Uh, do you go a little more in depth with my treatment protocol for the HS patient? The prednisone was actually a fairly short course because I was able to get, I was on the phone with the medical director the day I saw him, knowing I was going to want to use Humira, again, off label for HS at the time. So I knew we were going to be in a short lived period of time before we were going to have active drugs. So my intention was he took 40 a day for 10 days and down to 20. I think I saw him another week or two later. Um, and then we just continued to try to it off as we implemented his Humira treatment. What has been your personal experience with Humira? I found it not to be as helpful as I would like. Uh, I think it's great to have high expectations for this patient population. So not as helpful as you would like. I, I, I would like everyone to go clear forever with that disease, really. But I have found that the impact that it has on quality of life is incredibly dramatic. So um, I have found it to be very, very helpful. Again, not across the board 100% of the time. But I also would commit to you that perhaps the patients that I'm willing to treat with Humira are not necessarily the patients you might be thinking of. You know, I'm not a a person who only will treat my early stage three patients with Humira. Uh, we have got to be aware that the earlier in their disease progression that we implement therapy, the more real comorbid disease states we are probably salvaging over time. And you know, when you talk about early stages in the trials, early stage one, two, and three are surgical uh, descriptors um, developed by surgeons many years ago that actually have nothing to do with the frequency of flares or nothing to do with the pain quality of what people are living with. So when we are actually FDA approved for moderate to severe disease, moderate to moderate disease could be somebody who has one or two, you know, chronic, chronically recurring nodules in very precarious places or oozing and draining areas that just repeat in the perineal region every month with the menstrual cycle. I mean, that's burdensome disease. That's a, that's a moderate disease stage. Your person who gets an axillary nodule, you know, twice a year and stays inflamed for a couple weeks, which you could probably mitigate quite a bit with just an antibiotic hit right away, is not someone appropriate for Humira. But I have found it in instrumentally helpful in my patients that otherwise are moderate uh, and to severe in their disease state. And now I'm getting ushered off of the stage, sorry. <laughs> All right, thank you guys. This has been a presentation of Dermcast.tv, the official online media resource for the Society of Dermatology PAs.